This show covers content that may be triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. All parties are considered innocent until proven guilty in United States law. You are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is distributed by Glassbox Media and is part of the Crawlspace Media family. Welcome back to True Crime Twins, where we use our occupational and academic backgrounds in criminology and medicine to bring you crime stories each week. As always, I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Thank you so much for joining us for another week of true crime. This week, we are bringing you the second part of our coverage into the Idaho murders, which took place about six weeks ago in Moscow, Idaho, and claimed the lives of four University of Idaho students. In the early morning hours of November 13th, Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Xana Kernodal were all presumably asleep in their beds after respective nights out on the town. Some, but not all, had defensive wounds. Kaylee and Maddie, who had been best friends since middle school, were sharing a bed. According to Kaylee's father, Kaylee's wounds were much more brutal and severe as compared to Maddie's. In the first part of our coverage on the case, we summarized the crimes and speculated as to what kind of offender might have been responsible. News broke this week that the FBI and Idaho State Troopers had traveled to the Poconos region of Pennsylvania to the town of Albrightsville, where they arrested Brian Christopher Koberger, a 28-year-old graduate student in criminology and criminal justice. He had recently graduated with his master's degree in criminal justice from a college in Pennsylvania and had just finished his first semester in a doctoral program at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. This is located about 15 minutes away from the crime scene in Moscow, Idaho. I, for one, was very surprised to hear the news that they had arrested a suspect. How about you? I think when time passes with a crime this shocking and sensational, it had only been six weeks. But enough time had gone by that I think the general public was starting to wonder and worry if the case was starting to get cold, if they were running out of leads. I wasn't really surprised to see that an arrest had been made. There had been a lot of implications to the media from family members that the killer was sloppy and made a few mistakes that would inevitably lead to their capture. They didn't go into detail. I had to assume that with a brutal stabbing with a long blade knife that the killer most likely hurt themselves and cut their hand and left behind blood. That was my personal theory when I heard that they were sloppy and I was hoping that they would have made a match. Of course, when a match wasn't made immediately, I thought, okay, well, this person's not in CODIS. They're not a previous offender that's in the system. According to many sources, including the New York Post, Koberger was eventually identified as a suspect through the identification of his relatives through genetic genealogy. It was also determined that he drove a white Hyundai Elantra, which was the vehicle of interest, as stated by Idaho State Police. 
I remember thinking after they had released that they were looking for a Hyundai Elantra and then time had passed and nothing came up and everybody was still wondering when the police were continuing to ask the public for help identifying this car. I had this gut feeling that this car belonged to the suspect because it shouldn't be so hard for people to come forward and be like, oh, yeah, that's my car. I figured that whosoever car it was, they probably had something to do with it because they probably were trying to remain undiscovered. By the sounds of it, law enforcement had scoured CCTV footage from various surrounding residences and businesses and it sounded like that this car pretty much was the only one that could have been involved based on the timeline. But they were looking at this time frame that they knew that this had happened. And the vehicle of interest was seen speeding away from the direction of the crime. Brian's father had flown from Pennsylvania to the Washington State Idaho area so that he and his son Brian could drive together in that white Elantra across country to Pennsylvania for the Christmas break holiday. Do we know anything about the suspect's family? Hometowns for Brian Koberger have been listed as Albrightsville or Effort, Pennsylvania, which are both in Monroe County in the Poconos region. Beautiful area. His mother is a paraprofessional in the local schools, and his father works in maintenance in the same school system. He has a sister who works in New Jersey as a mental health counselor. His family has filed for bankruptcy twice, once shortly after he was born, and again in 2010. It's interesting that he's pursuing so much higher education. It seems like he doesn't really come from a background of financial support or parents who could financially support him through that. He had attended community college to pursue his associate's degree and then his bachelor's degree, which he had done at DeSales University in Pennsylvania. And then he continued on to get his master's degree at that same university. Sounds like he did it as economically as he possibly could have, doing it near where he lived and starting off by getting his associate's degree. Getting your doctorate, from my understanding, typically isn't tremendously costly. Usually the student gets a stipend if they are a teaching assistant, which Brian Koberger was. By all accounts, criminal justice was his passion. He had apparently engaged his teachers in high school extensively about movies centered around law enforcement. Anybody who spoke to him during his college years would say that this was his passion. And it would make sense that that was his passion if he was pursuing his doctorate degree in it. Of course, now that he stands accused of a vicious quadruple murder, you wonder what the origin of that passion is. Is it because he was nursing homicidal and other violent thoughts of his own? I have a hard time determining based off of what I've read about him if his primary interest was in criminals or criminal justice, like becoming a police officer or a judge or something like that. It seems like the end goal, I guess was being in research or education because of the field that he was studying. But do you have any idea what his initial interest really was about? I've read that he initially had interest in being a police officer. And in the years either before or during his undergraduate studies that he actually worked as a security guard. So it seems at least at first his interest was to work as a professional in the field. 
And of course, we've talked a lot about the kinds of personalities that those fields draw in. Oftentimes, it's good eggs, people that want to do good in society. But a lot of the times, it can draw people that are seeking a reassurance of power and dominance because they are lacking that in their day-to-day life. And from what we are reading about Brian Koberger, I would say that he is consistent with the latter. He followed the bullied to bully pipeline. In intermediate school, he was quite overweight and was cruelly and viciously bullied, from what it sounds, usually by females because of his weight. And then one summer, he returned to school and was extremely thin and gaunt. He had taken his mission to lose weight to an extreme. It didn't look like he was healthy. According to a family member who anonymously spoke to a news source, he had symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder when it came to food. He had embraced veganism, but it had gotten to the point where he wouldn't use pots, pans, plates that had previously had meat or meat product on them, even if they had been washed. This isn't the first time I've heard of somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder being extremely restrictive and discriminate about what goes into their body if they don't perceive it as pure enough for them, for instance. This can be characteristic of an eating disorder called orthorexia, where the fixation is more about the purity and the contents of the food more so than whether it's fattening. As we've seen with people like Adam Lanza, that kind of severe weight loss can cause brain damage. And I'm pretty sure that Adam Lanza coincidentally had the same exact preoccupation. Like he was disgusted by food, by most everything, to the point where he was severely malnourished. And from these pictures that I have seen of this suspect, he looks sort of like a bobblehead. Like he looks like there's nothing to him. It's very scary looking. Not only the gaunt face, but the intense, vacant stare really is reminiscent of Adam Lanza. And the similarities don't end there. Adam Lanza was described as having severe autism spectrum disorder, as well as co-occurring psychiatric disorders, including OCD. Of course, now we theorize that he possibly had a psychotic disorder working in conjunction with that and possibly even a personality disorder as well. We haven't heard of any formal diagnoses for Brian Koberger. I know that his public defender wants him to undergo psychiatric evaluations. But from what his peers have said, you know, these are people who are verified to have known him. They believed that he was on the autism spectrum based on his social behaviors. He also apparently had a background with drugs. I was reading about him possibly being a heroin addict during high school. What do you make of that? I had read that too. And I'd read some stories about how he battled that addiction. But it also seemed like in the aftermath of it, he had spent a lot of time in local bars and was still drinking. Of course, everybody's recovery journey looks different, but that's not a very typical sober behavior if you are addicted to opioids to then regularly drink alcohol, which has a similar depressant effect. On the subject of him going to bars, an article came out today, actually, where a bar owner in Pennsylvania near his home 
said that Brian frequented his establishment during his college years at DeSales University and that when bartending staff scan IDs, wait staff have the opportunity to leave notes for their employees about people so that they know what they're in for. When you're working as a bartender, I'm sure people can be quite volatile once they start to drink. And the notes that were included with Koberger's ID were that after two or three beers, he starts to get too comfortable. He starts making disrespectful comments. They described him as creepy. And this is a word that's been used to describe him many times by his peers. They said that he was creepy towards women in his high school. He was creepy towards women when he would go out. He was frequently rejected by women and didn't seem to understand or respect the word no. That's what makes somebody creepy is when they're getting that pushback and that rejection and they still don't stop and often become angry or belligerent. And that's definitely how they described him. They said that he would call wait staff, particularly female wait staff, disparaging names when they would try to set limits with him. And at one point, the owner, who was a male, approached him and said, hey, we're happy you're here. We're happy you're back. I just really hope that you can be respectful while you're here. And that Brian's reaction was completely shocked that he was being spoken to about this and that he had one beer and left and never came back. It's almost like he was living in a unself-aware drunk existence or maybe he was aware and he just was completely shocked that somebody had the balls to confront him. Maybe he just felt like he could do that because he had the right and that it wasn't really wrong. And then he just felt severe shame after that. To me, it's just classic that when limits were set by women, that he would get nasty and disrespectful. And then when a limit was set by a man, he acts completely oblivious to his own misbehavior and then just disappears and shuts down. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Based off of everything that we have read about him so far, why do you think he would have done this? In part one, we talked about the incel theory, which other sources have perpetuated as well. I think... From everything we're reading about Brian Koberger, we don't know his sexual history, and I honestly don't care to know, but it seems that he did have a pattern of being bullied and chronically rejected by women. I think that could have built up a resounding sense of resentment towards women, especially those, as incels would describe, as Stacys and males who are attractive and have sex that incels would call chads. If you're constantly rejected and you can't acclimate and have successful normal relationships, that resentment is going to inevitably build up. So you think it's possible that he had his sights set on these two beautiful, blonde, happy-go-lucky, fun girls and hated them just without even knowing anything about them because these are the types of girls that make him feel ridiculed or do you think that it was that plus the combination of having this criminology background and education and he wanted to sort of be like Dexter and sort of be like the guy behind the scenes like what can I get away with because I'm so damn smart 
it's funny that you say I'm so damn smart because everybody that describes him says that it was very important to him that people knew that he was very intelligent. And I'm sure that he was. He had to be to be in the position that he was in in, in his life and in his education. He was probably using his intelligence to compensate for his own shortcomings and his insecurities where he couldn't have conventional relationships. It sounds like he even struggled having conventional friendships. I don't know how he became aware of Maddie, Kaylee, Zana, and Ethan. I don't know which, if not all, were initially targeted or the source of his disdain. Since he did frequent nightlife, it's possible that he came across one or more of the victims in person. Who knows if he actually directly interacted with them or if he just watched them from afar. Anonymous law enforcement sources are saying that his cell phone was pinged in similar locations as the victims in the weeks leading to the crime, implying that he might have been stalking them or watching them. I wonder if he did just target one or two and not all of the people in the house and ended up hurting, say, Xana and Ethan because he didn't know which room the primary targets were in, or if he did find the primary targets and then his anger wasn't fully quashed by the initial attack and he just wanted to keep stabbing. My instinct tells me that Xana and Ethan were collateral damage. The second floor was the point of entry, according to sources. So he goes in through the second floor, goes up, pills the two girls on the third floor, comes downstairs, maybe one or both of Ethan and Xana woke up, encounter the guy. Apparently Xana has some defensive wounds. The next morning, the two girls downstairs discover one of them unconscious. That's all we know. They called emergency services because somebody was unconscious. Presumably it was one of the victims on the second floor, Ethan or Xana. Maybe one of them was out in the open, like in a common area, not in their bed, and just minimally injured. Like Maybe they were face down and only had like one or two stab wounds because they were just in the way and he was on his way out. So somebody that's face down, it's not necessarily apparent that they were a victim of stabbing yet. I do feel like that maybe they were killed because they heard or saw something. Some people wonder if Brian had these homicidal urges all along or if throughout his studies in criminal justice, he just became so morbidly curious that he had to experience it himself. I think the latter is a bit silly. I don't think someone just does this to write a good dissertation. I think they do it because they have uncontrollable urges. It sounds like Brian had poor emotional controls and aggression starting from his childhood. He was known to get into fights. Basically, he showed up to school one year after losing a bunch of weight and became this aggressive bully, creepy towards women, and would get into physical fights with peers. He was... Because of his knowledge in the criminal justice system, I imagine, had taken some measures to avoid detection. Law enforcement were tracking him across country. They had become aware of him and his potential as a suspect before he and his father left for Pennsylvania. And apparently when he went to a local giant in Pennsylvania, he was wearing gloves the entire time seemingly aware of the fact that he could be leaving fingerprints or touch DNA evidence around the store. Or was he hiding his chopped up fingers? 
it could be that too. I saw his mugshot and you can't see his hands in the picture, but I imagine that they would have taken pictures of his hands and other parts of his body to see if injuries were consistent. No murder weapon has been located at this juncture. Six weeks would have been plenty of time, but if he got enough blood at the scene, I'm sure that he's got something that left a permanent mark. Is it true that blood has the consistency of motor oil and that it's very slippery and almost impossible to not slip and cut your hand if you're stabbing someone? I don't know the consistency of motor oil, but yes, I do know that blood is quite slippery. We were pretty sure that the killer would have left DNA at the scene because of that fact, but we didn't know how much or, you know, the quality of any evidence left behind. You know, everything's mixed together. It's a sloppy scene, but it seems as though they were able to isolate enough to find him. His classmates said that the murders were discussed extensively in class in the aftermath, which, of course, they would be, I'm sure, in every criminal justice class in the United States and beyond these murders were discussed, but especially because it was the neighboring university. Washington State University is extremely close to the University of Idaho. The classmate said that Brian never contributed to the conversation and just proceeded with business as usual. He finished out the semester without much interruption. It should be noted that his downstairs neighbor in the student housing apartment where he lived said that Brian never slept, that he could be heard up in all hours of the night, walking around, vacuuming, etc. The downstairs neighbor considered saying something to him about it because it was disturbing her and her children. She ultimately decided not to be confrontational, which I think was the right move in hindsight. He apparently was frequently tardy to class and always had coffee in hand and just seemed extremely exhausted and overwork spread thin. I can already hear the defense. They're going to say that he has mental illness and that he was having a psychotic episode because he wasn't sleeping or that he slept walked, slept murdered. I don't know. I'm already hearing all the excuses in my head. Because we are a show that focuses on clinical knowledge, I'd like our closing thoughts to be... Guess the Zodiac. What is his sign, Melina? Oh, God. Um, My guess is either Scorpio or Aquarius. Brian Koberger is a Scorpio, born November 21st, 1994. Did he kill because he's a Scorpio? Probably not. Why did he do it? Court proceedings should tell us. Maybe he will take a plea agreement and just plead guilty and get this over with. However, through his public defender, he said that he is eager to be exonerated and that he is shocked that he is arrested. With the DNA evidence and the fact that his vehicle was apparently caught on CCTV, I hardly believe that will be the case, but time will tell. I guess either outcome is okay for him because he would have led a very non-memorable existence otherwise. Or he could have been the next iconic and influential criminologist of our generation. Who knows if this was his first rodeo? Now that they have his DNA and his fingerprints, maybe we'll find out. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of True Crime Twins. If you enjoy our show and look forward to new episodes, please take the time to leave us a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen. You can follow us on social media, on TikTok, in Twitter, we are at True Crime Twins. On Instagram, we are at True Crime Twins Podcast. You can also email with questions, comments, case suggestions at truecrimetwinspodcast at gmail.com.